Well, this is Alex Grant. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastián Guirobono, following the adventures of young T-Hax Tabares, who wields the power of... El Fuego! During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico, available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. Welcome again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Today, we're really excited to have illustrator extraordinaire Bill Stout, fantasy and dinosaur illustrator, theme park designer, comic artist, movie storyboard artist, production design artist, the list goes on and on. Bill, thank you for joining us today. Hey, glad to be here. You're an L.A. guy originally, correct? Yeah, I was born Salt Lake City, Utah, on the way to L.A. Oh, I see. My parents were visiting my dad's family in Idaho, and then they started heading back, and I popped out in Salt Lake City. I was there for a couple months and then off to L.A., and uh, even though I lived all over the world, I've always kept an L.A. base. I would always maintain an apartment or something, even when I was working in Europe or in Canada or in Mexico. And you live in Pasadena now? Yep. Known for its beautiful craftsman architecture. In fact, I, I live in a 1913 craftsman house. Ah, uh, nice. So where did you go to school? I grew up in the San Fernando Valley in a town called Reseda. It's the sure. hottest part of the San Fernando Valley. In fact, one day, Reseda was the hottest place in the entire world. I think it was over 120 degrees. And so I asked my mom for an egg because I'd always heard about it being so hot you could fry an egg on the sidewalk. And so I, I fried an egg on the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of Yeah, I, I charge extra when I have to go to the Van Nuys Courthouse. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in the fifth grade, well, actually, I was in the very first what they called the gifted program. It was an experiment in California schools separating out the, the quicker learners. I learned to read when I was about three. And so I was in the gifted program all through elementary school. One of my favorite teachers was a guy named Elliot Wittenberg. And one day he caught me drawing in class when I should have been listening. Mm -hmm. Instead of punishing me, he said, do you have any more drawings like that? And the kid next to me said, oh, you should see it. He's got a whole book full of monsters and dinosaurs. And he asked me if I'd bring that book in. It was like a little Cub Scout scrapbook that I filled with pictures of, of monsters. And I was just relieved I wasn't in trouble. So I brought it in the next day. And he started to assign me extracurricular work involving drawing. And he knew I wanted to be a doctor. So he'd, he'd say, Bill, you know, I think our class needs a chart of the human musculature system. Could you draw yeah. that up for us? He's oh, like, wow. Yeah, sure. Draw that up. Did the human skeleton, cross-section of the ear, cross-section of the eye. And what I didn't realize is I was teaching myself anatomy. Yeah. And it would have been much easier for him to just punish me. But instead, he made this time investment in me. And it's the reason I dedicated my first book, my dinosaur's book, to him. Wow, that's a oh, great that's story. Great. Boy, that's fascinating about early teachers. I've heard that story. Yeah, you know, a lot of those old like medical textbooks from the 50s, it takes true illustrative art form to put those together. And uh, that's awesome that you basically had a crash course in that. That's awesome. Uh, when did you start reading comics and what were they? I started reading comics when I was, I think, about eight years old. And I was reading uh, Classics Illustrated because they were the good safe comics, you know. <laughs> I, we spent one year in El Segundo and then moved back to Reseda, and I became friends with a guy who had this gigantic trunk full of old comics. And I, I believe it was the trunk that eventually Collector's Bookstore bought and, and started their whole little mini empire. Oh, wow. Uh, by then, I was reading Archie comics, because I like the humor stuff, and I had another friend who had a big stacks of Archie comics, but he liked to read the superhero comics. He liked Superman and the Superman family. And eventually, I sort of slowly started to begin reading those. I got swept up in the Silver Age stuff with Flash and Green Lantern. I was really affected by Carmen Infantino's work and Gil Kane's work and Murphy Anderson's inking. Uh -huh. And around the time I was 14, I believe, I... I met this guy, Fred Romanek, in an old bookstore. I was going through boxes of old comics. And he said, hey, you like comics? I go, yeah. And uh, he lived a couple blocks away. We went over to his place, 
and he showed me my first fanzine. So I'd never seen a fanzine before. Wow. I think it was Rockets Blast. And he proposed we do a fanzine together. When he found out I liked to draw, he liked to draw too. And so we did a, a Mimeo zine called uh, Comics Past, Present, and Future. No. Put it out oh. and sold all 50 copies. Uh, around what year was that, you think, Bill? Early 60s. Yeah. Okay. So you were about like maybe 14, 15 years old at the time. Well, like 62, 63, I think. Yeah, that's great. So what, what was the subject of the fanzine? What were you guys talking oh. about? Oh, oh, it's stuff like, you know, should Spider-Man join the Fantastic Four? Idiot kid stuff. That's controversial stuff right there, yeah. Yeah, right. Oh, that's great. Did you only later go back and discover EC Comics, or was that something you had, or mad, or any of that at that time, Kurtzman? There's a kid I knew who collected comics at my junior high school, and he asked me if I had any EC. I said, yeah, I've got loads of DC comics. He goes, not, not DC, EC. And I go, what are you talking about? I'd never heard of it. But the name stuck in my mind. And then my friend Roman, he, I think he showed me my first EC. And I wasn't impressed. It was uh, the special flying saucer issue of either weird science or weird fantasy or weird science fantasy. Uh-huh. Sure. And to me, because it was the special flying saucer issue, it was sort of documentary-like. It was almost like a news report. And so I thought, what's the big deal? Yeah. <laughs> you know, later, I, I saw more true ECs, you know, with the twist ends and all that stuff. And boy, that, that really hit me. Fred also showed me my very first piece of original comic book art. He had a page, I think it was a Batman page by Jim Mooney, who was living in L.A. Oh, cool. And I was blown away because, for one, I had no idea they did them so big. I thought they drew everything actual size. And here are these huge pages. The slickness, the quality of the inking was just extraordinary. It was the first time I'd ever seen brush inking close up. I think the inking I was doing back then was probably a ballpoint pen. That changed me. And then Julie Schwartz used to give away original art. That's right. If you liked your letter. Yes. And Fred wrote a letter to Mystery in Space, and he got the most incredible Adam Strange story I think they ever did together, Infantino and Anderson. And so I got to see those originals, and that really blew me away. He sent the whole story. Wow. Yeah, the whole story. And that was a story that took up, I believe it took up the entire book, and it had a one page that was an absolute classic, which was Alana, Adam Strange's girlfriend, full figure, dripping wet. Wow. Beautiful stuff. That's just amazing. It is. So at what point did you start thinking maybe this is something I'd be interested in doing? Uh, That wasn't until my very last semester of high school. I was a science and math major all through school. I was definitely intent on being a doctor. Uh, But the school system there was horrible. I wasn't learning anything. In fact, they had mandatory school spirit. You had to attend the pep rallies. Well, I would ditch the pep rallies and go to the library and try to teach myself because I knew I wasn't getting taught anything in my classes. But it was sort of like Sisyphus trying to roll that boulder up the hill. Yeah. And so so my last semester, I decided, well, you know, you're going to graduate. You're going to be two years behind everyone else in college. You better think about doing something else. And I thought, well, I've always liked to draw. So I changed my major to art. And then uh, my family was dirt, dirt poor. There's no way they could even send me to a community college. But fortunately, I got perfect scores on my SATs. And because of my financial condition and the perfect scores in the SATs, the state of California gave me a full scholarship for four years to any university I wanted to go to in the United States. Mm -hmm. And my friends thought I was nuts. You could go to Harvard. You could go to Yale. You picked an art school? Are you out of your mind? I went to California. Institute of the Arts, Cal Arts, which I think at that time was probably the best art school in the country. The head of the music department was Ravi Shankar. The head of the fashion department was Edith Head, who won more Oscars than any other costume designer in history. Yeah, sure. The head of the illustration department was Hal Kramer. He was the very first president of the Society of Illustrators. The head of the animation department, well, the animation department was being taught by Disney's nine old men. So, yeah, that's right, I mean, those guys. Oh, my God. You, you couldn't find a, a better education. And yeah. so I, I was really lucky. I benefited from that. It was my first time on my own. I lived briefly with my dad. My parents had gotten divorced. I lived briefly with my dad. But quickly, with my summer jobs, I was making enough money to live on my own. So I moved to Hollywood. 
mm-hmm. and began living there and going to school from Hollywood. Um, those nine old men used to make convention appearances toward the end of their lives. I wish I could have yeah. caught that. Yeah. So those summer jobs you had, that was at Disneyland? So, yeah, I was working in New Orleans Square painting watercolor portraits. Uh, we got paid on commission. So the more portraits you painted, the more money you made. I was doing over 80 portraits a day, just cranking those babies out. <laughs> wow. It was a fascinating, fascinating place to be and fascinating time. And while you were at Cal Arts, did you have any any teachers or classmates that uh, we would know that are were memorable mentors or partners? Let's see. Uh, well, there's the, the folks I just named, plus my best friend at our school is a guy named Chuck Roblin, who did comics for a while. He did uh, a comic called Tex Benson. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, he turned me on to Heinrich Clay, which, boy, that, that was an eye-opener. And uh, most of the comic stuff, they didn't really teach comics at my art school. I was learning all that stuff on my own. But they had a great policy in the illustration department. I was an illustration major. The policy was that if you got any real work on the outside, you could turn it in in lieu of your homework. And my last year and a half of art school, everything I was turning in was a real job. So it made the transition from academia to the real world absolutely seamless. It was just great. And were you still reading mainstream comics, or had you shifted your attention to underground things and and stuff like that? Around 1971, I had been doing a lot of artwork for this guy who managed different bands. And he also uh, coordinated festivals and built stages for rock festivals. And I, I did a lot of freebie stuff for him, and he wanted to pay me back somehow. So one night, he came over with a this fellow introduced me. He said this guy was producing a gigantic rock and roll festival, a five-day festival in Louisiana. And so they were there to determine what my job would be at that festival. Mm-hmm. And so they fired up a, a huge fat doobie. And about 10 minutes later, my friend said, I know, we need a guy to sit on stage and draw the rock stars while they're performing. Can you do that? I go, I can do that. <laughs> and so that, that was my job. And nice. they wanted to do another Woodstock. And eventually, you know, the gates came crashing down, the fences came down, it turned into a free festival. But it was one of those festivals where it was 24-7. There was not a time when there wasn't somebody on stage. They played all through the night, all through the day. And I got to meet a lot of fantastic musicians. And it was an extraordinary experience. And then I hitchhiked back home from uh, Louisiana up to St. Louis, Missouri, and then St. Louis to L.A. That's kind of the rock and roll version of a chord illustrator right there. Yeah, yeah. It was cool. <laughs> All right, so then you were talking about the uh, fanzine that you did when you were younger. And before yep. 71, which is where we were kind of at, you also did a pulp magazine cover called Coven in 1968. How did that come about? We had a job bulletin board at art school. And one day there was this posting looking for an artist to uh, do uh, horror, the fantastic witches, werewolves, vampires and stuff. And I thought, whoa. They're having a contest to do the first cover for this magazine called Coven 13. Uh-huh. And so I submitted three pieces, and one of them was chosen to be the cover. Their editorial offices were just two blocks from my school. Oh, cool. So I, I walked over to uh, deliver the painting to be shot, and I said, who have you got doing the interiors? They said, oh, our art director is doing the interior. They said, oh, can I see them? Well, the art was horrible. I mean, you know, it looked like, you know, elementary school drawings. It was just awful. I said, how about if I do the interior illustrations too? So I did the covers and all the interiors for the first four issues of the magazine. Oh, nice. You did quite a bit of interiors and it was for four issues. That's a lot. And that sounds like it was a natural extension of just your location in the school and the bulletin boards. My location, the school, my passions, my interests. And then that affected me in an interesting way in that uh, when I was doing watercolor portraits at Disneyland, I had samples on my easel. Each artist did his own samples. It was so the public could say, I want that artist or I like that artist style. And so I was working on a portrait and I hear a voice behind me reading the signature on my portrait. She goes, Stout, huh? By any chance, are you the, the Stout that does the illustrations for Coven 13? And I was sort of shocked to be recognized. And I turned around and it was a teenage Scott Shaw. And oh, wow. Scott said, wow, would you like to be a guest at a comic book convention in San Diego? Uh-huh. I go, sure. And so that's how I went to the very first Comic-Con. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, because Scott Shaw was definitely part of the early Comic-Cons. Yeah. 
I'm yeah. one of five people that's been to every single Comic Con. Oh, that's awesome. Now, around the same time, 1971, one of your main mentors in life, you would meet him and assist him, Russ Manning, on the Tarzan of the right. Apes strip. So how did that come about? How'd you meet Russ? How'd you get into being trained by him and assisting him? Well, I was a big Edgar Rice Burroughs fan, and I had a subscription to this great fanzine called Herbdom. Herbdom. And I began to submit drawings to Herbdom, and an unpublished Burroughs book was found called I'm a Barbarian. It was the story of Caligula as told by Caligula's personal slave. Mm-hmm. And so I was real excited that there's going to be a new Burroughs book out. And Jeff Jones illustrated it. And uh, I got my copy and I decided I would do my own version of illustrations. And I did each one in a different style. I did one in the style of Infantino Anderson, one in the style of Rosetta, one in the style of Crankle, one in the style of Williamson. I it for a new assistant. And he was a subscriber to Herbdom and he saw these pictures and he saw that I was relatively local. He lived down in Orange County, which at that time was not that bad a drive. It was about a 45-minute drive. Now it'd probably take you a couple hours. Mm-hmm. But uh, he called me up and asked if I would meet with him. And uh, he asked me if I was interested in assisting him. I, I was. I was already a huge Manning fan from both his Tarzan comics and uh, Magnus Robot Fighter. Yeah. And so I began to drive out, I think, three or four days a week to Russ's studio down in Orange. And uh, I'd sit with him and I would ink the strips, everything except the figure of Tarzan himself. And I would also color the Sundays. Um, and then we did uh, three graphic novels together as well. So what sort of techniques did you learn from Russ while you're doing that? Russ, when he was in the Navy, he got stayed. That's where he first did Japanese prints. And uh, they've been a, a gigantic influence ever since. Plus, I always loved Russ's work, and uh, he taught me the importance of meeting deadlines. I loved the way he would create three dimensions within the strip by where he placed his blacks. Mm. And I just, I learned an enormous amount from him. Plus, he also turned me on to, I was saying something about how wonderful Bernd Hogarth was, and he stopped me, and he went over to his big flat piles. He started showing me all these incredible How Foster Tarzans and Prince Valiants. And I was like, whoa! Totally blown away. Yeah. And so Foster became a gigantic influence. And whenever I get together with Al Williamson, we'd always joke about how in our work, we're always trying to do new breakthroughs and, and uh, do things people have never done. And, and every time we, we did something like that, we'd go back to Foster and Foster had done it in the 30s or the 40s already. Yes. Wow, it's that's incredible. awesome. Well, actually, I've read all the Foster Prince Valiant stuff. I'm pretty amazed by some of it. Feels like cinematography, like when he's getting attacked by pterodactyls, he's hiding under giant ribs. There's some pretty impressive stuff there. Yeah, right. So then, now, would you consider your relationship with Russ like a friendship, or was it more like a boss, or was it like a mentor student? It was all of the above. Besides the work, the thing I'm most grateful to Russ for is to showing me how to be a good dad. Mm-hmm. I watched how he interacted with his two kids, mm-hmm. and I learned so much about being a good parent from watching Russ. Wow, that's awesome. So he had a good demeanor about him. Oh, yeah. Patient demeanor. That's awesome. He also had a sort of Albert Schweitzer-like quality to him, too, and that it pained him enormously to harm any living creature. I showed up at the studio one day, and there's this big line of ants going right across the floor of the studio. And Russ would not spray them, would not do anything. He, he, he literally could not even hurt an ant. Uh-huh. And one time he got termites, and it just pained him incredibly to have to kill the termites. Yeah, that's interesting. So even for insects, that's a huge amount of compassion, I have to admit. Yeah. Why did you end up leaving Russ? What were the circumstances of not working for him anymore? And then going to your next thing. Well, I got this job working at a rock festival. <laughs> yeah, at the rock festival. There you go. Yeah. And so I was gone for a few weeks and I was young and dumb. I just kind of sprang it on rest that I was leaving for a while. And he was like shocked. He's like, well, wait a minute. I'm not going to have an assistant for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And so it started him looking for someone else. But I came back and I continued to work on it. But by that time, I started doing my own stuff. I was working for Cycletoons and Cartoons, doing comic book stories for Peterson Publications. There you go. Uh-huh. And then my illustration career started to really hit. And I started doing movie posters. And that was 
at that time, that was the biggest money you could make in illustration was movie posters. There you go. And so in 72, you transitioned over to, to working with, uh, with Kurtzman too on little Annie Fanny. Is that right? Right. Yep. So tell us a little bit about that, uh, how that came to be in your relationship with Kurtzman and with elder. Sure. Well, I had become a huge EC fan due to Frank Frazetta. I was collecting every Frazetta comic I could find, and I found out that he did several things for EC, inking Williamson and did a, you know, a story on his own and did the incredible Weird Science Fantasy 29 cover. So my goal was to buy every Frazetta comic, and so I got every Frazetta EC. Well, when I got the Frazetta ECs, wow, look at this great Williamson stuff. So well, now I had to get all the Williamson ECs. And, I was acquiring a lot of science fiction ECs, weird science and weird science fantasy and and weird fantasy. So I seen all this great Wally Wood stuff. Well, I thought, well, I got to get all the Wally Wood stuff. Well, that you know, you can see how the collection and expanded to the point where, well, I think I need a dozen more issues, and I've got all the EC neutrons. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. So one of the latter things that I was turned on to was Mad and Panic. Uh-huh. And Willie Elder stuff, and it's just Willie Elder had this incredible ability that is so rare, which is he can do a drawing that will make you laugh even if you don't understand the context of the story. It's just yeah. funny art. It's funny anyway. And, yeah, yeah, it's funny anyway. And so I did a story for Cycle Tunes that was a tribute to Harvey Kurtzman, Wally Wood, and Willie Elder called Motorcycle. Uh-huh. And when it was published, I sent off copies to all three guys. And I got a letter back from Kurtzman asking me if I would like to come back east and work on Little Annie Fanny with him and Elder. Nice. I was like, I just threw the moon. That was incredible. So that was the first time I ever went to New York. So it was 1972. So it happened to coincide with the very first EC convention. So I got to meet all of my heroes in that one weekend. There you go. That's absolutely incredible. So speaking of, of your heroes, which ones out of the EC artists, which ones really spoke to you? What were your favorites? Frazetta, Williamson, Wood, eventually Graham Engels. Graham Engels had this extraordinary ability to even his so-called normal people look like there was something wrong with them. <laughs> it, it, just, it just really creepy. It sort of gets into your spinal cord, the creepiness of his stuff. It does. I learned a lot about storytelling from Kriegstein. George Evans became a good friend of mine. Wow. Williamson and Crinkle were good friends. Oh, Rick Crandall. Big influence. Oh, yeah, uh, he's great. I got to read when he was working in Al Williamson's studio. Al invited me to spend the weekend at his place, and he was sharing the studio with Reed Crandall. So I got to meet Reed Crandall. That was pretty awesome. So this was all around that convention in 72, the EC convention that you met yeah. all these guys? Wow. Yeah. What about Davis? Oh, Jack Davis? Jack, I came to his stuff Later in life, I liked his comics, but I wasn't nuts about him. But the things that really knocked me out by Davis were was when he drew the Universal Monsters and yeah. uh, those monster trading cards. Uh-huh. That stuff was just extraordinary. I still got all that stuff. Oh, and his album covers. I thought his album covers were phenomenal. Right. I was also really impressed by him because I had read that he was making over a million dollars a year. And I thought, that's a worthy goal. Yeah. A nice goal for sure. So my first thought was, okay, how does he do it? Well, one thing, he works really fast. Okay, how can I teach myself to work really fast but maintain a high quality of the work? Uh-huh. Work fast without losing the quality. And so that became a real goal of mine. And so I, I became a very fast artist, and it was due to Jack Davis. Yeah, because you can draw an Ankylosaurus in five minutes. So, yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Yeah, first thousand are the hardest. <laughs> So that's that's really fascinating, all of those EC influences. Were you into the Kurtzman War books too, or Severin and all of the people that were doing those? I was definitely into uh, Two-Fisted Tales and Frontline Combat. Those had a big influence on me. They were the very first war comics that were anti-war. They were realistic. They did not glorify war. And right. that was an extraordinary thing. Plus, it was also happening at the time we were still involved in the Vietnam War too. Yes. And... Uh, when I was working for Kurtzman, boy, research became essential. I remember I was working on a little Annie Fanny page that required a fire hydrant. So I just drew a fire hydrant in there. He goes, Bill, how do you know that looks like a real fire hydrant? I go, well, I just kind of remember it. He says, let's go outside. We went outside and we found a real fire hydrant. And I saw everything I had drawn wrong. Ah. And 
that became this this thing with me. I call it the Kurtzman curse. It really yeah. slows me down because I've got to research everything because I can't have anything that's not accurate. Yeah. But I think it pays off in the end. You end up with stuff that's at a, just a higher level of quality than you would have if you just made everything up. So that attention to like realistic detail comes from Kurtzman and then the push for other mediums and to draw fast comes from Davis, right? These are like various elements uh, that you're absorbing. That's great. Yeah, definitely. Kurtzman, was he hard to please? Was he hard to work with in terms of that? No. I mean, he was really demanding, but I was used to that working with Russ. Russ was demanding, you know, and and it was always uh, for a higher end. It was always to do the best possible work. Right. There's no harm in that. What was the main function for Kurtzman and Elder that you did? And did it help them save time? Was it a successful assistance that you gave? The reason they hired me is Kurtzman saw that I could duplicate styles. So he figured I could duplicate his and Willie Elder's style. And Hefner was complaining that they weren't producing enough anti-pages each year. The idea was that I would be slipped in between Kurtzman and Elder. And the, the way it would work is Harvey Kurtzman would write three stories. And then he'd draw them up on eight and a half by 11 sheets and then send them off to Hefner. And Hefner would approve one. And it would come back and then Harvey would... Let's see, he began drawing the pages full size. One thing that really shocked me was I hadn't realized how incredibly tight Harvey's pencils were for Annie, because I was used to seeing his finished work, which seems deceptively simple. And this was anything but simple. It was really, really detailed. And he would do that in, in a series of layers until he finally the final layer was the last pencil page. Then he would give that to me. I would make a homemade carbon paper because the carbon paper that you would buy in the art supply stores had a residue in it that we didn't want. And so I would just take a soft pencil and take a sheet of paper and cover it with soft pencil. And then I would use that to transfer Harvey's pencils to a, a nice clean sheet of illustration board. And then I would uh, redraw everything that Kurtzman had done and correct any anatomical errors I saw. And then... While I was doing that, Kurtzman was taking uh, Xeroxes of the story pages, and then he watercolored them. So that gave me my color schemes. And then using those, I would start to build up transparent color on the penciled art. When I was about half finished, then I would take it over to Willie Elder, and Elder would do the finishes. And when the page was finished, it would go to Kurtzman, and Kurtzman would lay a tissue over it, and he'd make 300 corrections mm, on that one page. Wow. Then I wow. go back to Elder. Elder would make the corrections. I go back to Kurtzman. Kurtzman make 150 more corrections. Go back to Elder. Elder make the correction. Go back to Kurtzman. Kurtzman make about 50 more corrections. Wow. Elder would do those, and then the the page was finished, except for going to the letterer. And I I said, Harvey, <laughs> my God, no one's gonna see these little corrections. Why on earth do you do that? He said, If I didn't do it, Hefner would. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you. Did you have any interactions with Hefner? And what did they think of about working with Hefner? Well, whenever Harvey would visit in L.A., he'd take me to the mansion. So I, I'd meet Hefner at the mansion. But Hefner, it was frustrating for me because Hefner didn't understand Harvey's sense of humor. Often, Hefner would rewrite Harvey's dialogue because he didn't understand Kurtzman's penchant for catchphrases. And he would replace it with really stupid, dumb dialogue and really kill the humor. But Hefner was a frustrated cartoonist, and this was his way of yeah. expressing himself as a cartoonist. Yeah. Kurtzman really wanted to work in film. And the way that uh, Hefner kept sort of Kurtzman dangling, he kept promising him he could direct a, a little Annie Fanny movie. Every time Kurtzman was threatening to leave, Hefner would bring that up. Ah, I'd never heard that. Had you heard that, Alex? That's interesting. No. Uh. But it never happened. I was only on the strip for a couple stories, and uh, Kurtzman took me aside. He says, Bill, uh, you're too creative for us. We're not getting any speed by having you, you work in between us. And my arrogance, I was like adding jokes and eyeball kicks and stuff uh -huh. instead of just doing uh -huh. the job. Yeah. And they needed just somebody to do the job and be invisible, and, and that, that wasn't me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was a big influence on the work he would do in the future after leaving that job, right? 
Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I think my first or second day of working with Kurtzman, Harvey said, Bill, you're going to learn a lot here. You may not realize it at the time, but years from now, it'll bubble up and you go, oh, yeah. And, and boy, was he right. I'm still doing stuff now where I go, oh, yeah, I can see Kurtzman right away. I see some of that influence of the Kurtzman elder in the book you did with Leonardo DiCaprio's dad. I feel a yeah. lot of that, but it's like your rock and roll essence is in it, obviously, but I can see their influence, I feel. Yeah. Well, in all those covers that you did shortly after that, some of the underground stuff, the Fear and Laughter cover and uh, Weird right. Trips and Cocaine Comics, you see a lot of that humor and a lot of the kind of echoing back to Mad and to Kurtzman in general. But talk a little bit about that period, what you were doing in terms of the underground comics. One of the things I really connected with with Kurtzman and Elder is we both have a subversive sense of humor. There you go. And that tends to run through almost everything that I do. Even some of my Antarctic paintings, I'll put in little things that are just <laughs> shouldn't be there. Uh -huh. So it was Jim Evans who... I met him, he was the designer of that rock festival in Louisiana. And then he was the guy who showed me my first Zap comic, my first underground comic. And it was the one with Joe Blow, the Robert Crumb story. Yeah. And yeah. it just blew my mind. I read that and I thought, oh my God, comics can do anything now. Yeah. Anything. Oh, it was wide open. And it was a revelation. It was just absolutely incredible. The stuff that Crumb was doing, Griffin, Robert Williams, all those guys, Spain Rodriguez, just blew me away. And I, I knew I had to be a part of that. And so I started drawing my own underground comics. Initially, I did some stories for Jim Evans, who wanted, he was put out an underground comic called Dying Dolphin. But my stuff, it just really didn't fit with the theme of the book. But I kept the pages, and eventually they saw print elsewhere. But yeah, the undergrounds, that really did it for me. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. Before we move on to Alex and talking about some of the rock and roll and heavy metal, we were talking about EC artists. There's one that I wanted to ask you about that didn't do very much at EC, but I know he was a favorite of yours. Uh, what about Alex Toth? I knew Alex really well, went to his house a lot. I was introduced to Alex by Bob Foster, who at that time was probably Alex's best friend. In my early days in doing comics, I kept hearing about storytelling, how important that was. And I had no idea what people were talking about. And they kept saying, yeah, the, yeah, one of the best storytellers in the business is Alex Toth. So I just started to buy his stuff and look at it, even though I didn't understand what was going on. Through osmosis, I began to pick up some of his storytelling techniques uh -huh. and stuff. And so he became a really important influence on me, even though when I first discovered him, I had no idea what I was looking at. You know, I was much more impressed by the, the guys with slicker inking styles right. back then. But eventually, Alex's work hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. And, he's and, a favorite of mine. And that's interesting, the use of blacks, because um, Dan Barry with that slick New York line, and you have Alex Toth, which is a little more rugged, but the storytelling and the shading, that Null Sickles influence, it's a really different usage of blacks. So it seems like you, you really keep an eye on that, on the use of blacks. Yeah, and the way he would spot the word balloons, too. That was really yeah. incredible. And the way he would even spot the sound effects. If there was a thrumming engine sound, that would go crawl across the bottom of the panel. And yeah. It's just amazing. I learned a lot, a lot from Toth. That's awesome. Now, you mentioned Jack Davis, who made a lot of money and was very successful. And one of the things he did was he went beyond comics into other mediums. You, of course, did the same. Tell us how you got into doing the covers for the um, bootleg albums. So there's a trademark of quality record label. There's some very famous EC style who covers you did. Tell us how you got involved in that. Sure. Well, I'm a huge music collector. I've got, I think, over 20, 30,000 albums and many thousands of CDs and stuff. And there was a, a Capitol Records in Hollywood on uh, the first Sunday of each month had a record swap meet in their parking lot. and People would sell used albums. This is pre-CD, so this was, uh, it was all vinyl and stuff. And I had a favorite record shop called Record Paradise on Hollywood Boulevard when I was living in Hollywood. I was checking in with them, and there was this new phenomenon called bootleg record albums. I think the first one I saw was the 
great white wonder. It was a Bob Dylan bootleg. And then the second one I saw was uh, Liver Than You'll Ever Be. It was a Rolling Stones bootleg. These were white album covers with the name of the album stamped in blue up in the corner. Mm-hmm. So there was no art or anything involved. And you could buy these on the street from people, or you could buy them actually in some of the record shops as well. And in fact, Rolling Stone reviewed Liver Than You'll Ever Be because it turned out it was a better live album than the official release by the Stones. It was just <laughs> it was an extraordinary show. Yeah. And back then it was a lot looser. You could go to a concert and bring a Sony tape recorder and tape the entire show if you wanted. You could get right up to the stage, take photographs of the players. It was a lot looser back then. So I had just been to a Led Zeppelin concert and I saw all these people taping the show. So I knew probably there's going to be a bootleg of that concert. And it was one of the best concerts I'd ever seen. Uh-huh. So I was waiting every day. I'd check in at Record Paradise to see if the bootleg was out yet. And one day I walked in and there it was. And I looked at it and the art was so crappy. <laughs> and out loud I said, oh man, the band deserves better than this. I wish somebody would get me to do bootleg record album covers. Yeah. And a guy tapped me on the shoulder and he said, want to do bootleg record album covers? I go, uh, yeah. He goes, okay, meet me at Selma and Las Palmas Friday night. <laughs> Six o'clock, be alone. <laughs> I love the shifty <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought, well, this is interesting. That's a really yeah. seedy part of Hollywood, really horrible part yeah. of Hollywood. But when I showed up, I was at six o'clock Friday, and this coupe drives up with smoked windows, and the passenger window side goes down a crack, and a piece of paper comes out. And I take it and it says, Rolling Stones Winter Tour, and there's a list of songs. Uh-huh. And a uh, voice inside says, See you in two weeks. Same time, same place. Be alone. <laughs> I love that. So I did my first album cover for them. It was sort of a, a tribute to Robert Crumb's Cheap Thrills. I love the idea of each song having its own illustration and also having caricatures of the band members on the cover as well. Uh-huh. So I, I did that. And eventually the bootleggers got so they could trust me that I could meet them in person and stuff. And their name of their company was Trademark of Quality, TMQ. Yeah. And so I began to hold them to that name. I kept pushing for more and more quality in, in the product that they were producing. The first bootleg record album covers were printed on eight and a half by 11 sheets and they were slipped in between the cover and the shrink wrap. So they weren't actually printed on the boards themselves. Eventually I got them to print the covers on the actual boards of the album covers and then i pushed them and got them to do the first color cover which i think was a bob dylan melbourne australia cover where Mm -hmm. bob's sitting in a kangaroo pouch and so it just kept expanding and one of my favorite bands in the whole world was the yardbirds and they wanted to do a yardbirds bootleg and i found out that keith ralph the lead singer of the yardbirds was living just over the hill from me because he's putting together a new band called Armageddon. And so I, somehow I got his, his phone number and called him up and said, look, uh, we're doing a two-album bootleg of really rare Yardbirds material, live recordings, European B-sides, stuff like that. I said, if we paid your rent for this month, would you consent to doing an interview? Basically, the interview was I would play the album for him, and he would just free associate whatever came to his mind of what was going on when they were doing that back then. Uh-huh. We did it, and, and it was a long interview. One of the bootleggers was with me, and he took photos of Keith, and those photos appear on the back cover. And then the front cover, I did a, a sort of Arthur Rackham-style illustration of the Yardbirds, where each guy was a different bird sitting on branches of a tree. Uh-huh. And uh, the Yardbirds had the extraordinary good luck to have as their first lead guitar player, Eric Clapton, their second lead guitar player, Jeff Beck, and their third lead guitar player, Jimmy Page. And I got to see the very last Yardbirds concert. It was in L.A. at the Shrine Exposition Hall. And I got backstage and I got to meet Jimmy Page and Keith Ralph and Chris Dresia and Jimmy McCarty. Jimmy told me, he says, well, the band's breaking up. I went, no, (laughs) you're my favorite group in the world. You can't do this. Keith and and Jim McCarty formed a group called uh, Renaissance. And then uh, Jimmy Page, he kept the Yardbirds and they changed into Led Zeppelin. Nice. Yeah, that's right. One quick question before I go to the next question. Did Graham Ingalls ever say that Arthur Rackham was an influence on him? Did it ever come up in a conversation? 
I've wondered that because there's like some similarities I feel when I look at both of their stuff. Yeah, I've never read that anywhere. If I had, it really would have stuck in my head too. Yeah, right. Arthur and Edmund Dulac were both huge influences on me. Right. I, right. I still still work in what I call a, a Dulac Rackham style. Oh, that's awesome. We were talking a little bit before the show that when you did a couple of the fire sign covers, that that uh, got you into the more legitimate album cover work. And one of them had the next world you're on your own, had a big dinosaur right in the middle. Tell us about that. And about fire sign also, because people may not know what that is about fire sign theater. Yeah. Fire sign theater were four guys and they made comedy albums, but their comedy albums were like no other comedy albums you've ever heard in that you could play them over and over and hear new stuff each time. They're really heavily layered with comedy and information. Sort of, I called them an oral version of Kurtzman and Elder's comics in that Kurtzman and Elder would have what Harvey called eyeball kicks, little tiny jokes filtered all throughout. In addition to the main story that was being told, the Firesign Theater did the same thing, but orally. It had heavily layered sounds and oh gosh almost throwaway lines and stuff that you go back later and you listen to it again and oh there's always new stuff to find so my pal dave gibson he was a comic book dealer and an original art dealer and uh he put out the very first uh, spirit reprints and then he got permission to put out a collection of a fire sign theater fanzine called the mixville rocket it was something that they produced for their local neighborhood and so I did the cover for that, and the guy saw the cover, and it so reflected the kind of humor that they were doing, they started wanting me to do their album covers. So the first album cover I did for them was uh, In the Next World, You're on Your Own. Now, I was fighting Columbia, though. Columbia, their record label, did not want to have me do a cover. For one, they had never heard of me. I was a total unknown to them. Mm-hmm. They didn't know if I could meet deadlines. They didn't know if I knew anything about the proper way to design an album cover. But after I turned in in the next world, you're on your own, they were so delighted. They began to give me lots and lots of work. And so that was my introduction and breakthrough into the legitimate record album world. So in the next world, you're on your own, I designed it so it had two front covers. So no matter which way it was in the bin, you were looking at a front cover and the record company loved that. And plus they, they were delighted that I was smart enough to know always put all your information, the title of the album and who does the album at the very top because these records are in bins. And as people are flipping through, the only thing they can see is the very top. I had already done that. So they were relieved and uh, began a great relationship with uh, Columbia CBS. And then from uh, 75 to 77, you're art director for a rock and roll magazine named Bomp. Is this all kind of part of the same involvement in the music world is it just kind of grows into this that was sort of an outgrowth of the bootlegs greg shaw was the original publisher editor in a way that was more contemporary was hipper uh more visual and so he contacted me we had worked together he had supplied me with some of the rare records for like who zoo which was a, a double album of the who with really rare b-sides and singles and stuff like that in fact john entwistle saw a copy of that album hadn't realized how much unreleased who stuff there was and he put out a legitimate version called odds and sods and then when they did the cd version of odds and sods the who contacted me to license one of my who bootleg record album covers as the picture disc for the cd oh pretty awesome that is Oh, the other thing with the fire sign is I did my very first movie with them. They did an album called Everything You Know Is Wrong, uh-huh. and they decided to make a film out of it. And so it was sort of the reverse. Usually you shoot the film and then you dub everything later. They already had the soundtrack, so we just mimed to the soundtrack. I built the props for the film and was an extra in uh, a party scene, and that was my first intro into uh, filmmaking. Oh, that's awesome. And then one more question before Jim does the next section. So how did you go about contributing to Heavy Metal Magazine, mid to late 70s? My regular publisher, Byron Price, had commissioned me to do a story for the illustrated Harlan Ellison. Yeah. And I did a story called Shatter Like a Glass Goblin. And to promote the book, the illustrated Harlan Ellison, uh, Byron licensed my story to Heavy Metal. And so that, that may be one of the first, if not the first, American contributor to heavy metal. 
I was getting heavy metal in its original form, Metal Hulon, the French magazine. And so I was really super well aware of all the, what the European cartoonists were doing. I had a monthly subscription to that magazine. Oh, that's great. I know you're a Mobius fan, but who else were you really interested in in that period? In that period, Victor de la Fuente. He did Matador and, and some other stuff. And he turned out to be a close friend of Williamson's. And then when I was in Spain working on Conan the Barbarian in Madrid, every Friday, six o'clock, all the local comic book artists would get together at Totem, a local comic book shop. And the owner would lock the doors and we just hang out and, and chat and stuff for about an hour. And then we go down the street a block to there was a cafe where the owner was nuts about comics and he'd have a big table for us. And he'd serve us free hors d'oeuvres and drinks all night long. It was absolutely incredible. But there I got to meet Carlos Jimenez, who oh. I, I consider the Spanish Eisner. I yeah. mean this guy is he's phenomenal. he's great. The stuff is so compelling that I took uh I had a book called Paracuellos and another one called Barrio and I translated them word by word because the images were so compelling. I had to know what the story was. But Carlos, amazing, amazing artist. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Alex, anything else on that? Or are we ready to move on to... Yeah, let's to go to Bakshi. I should also mention Richard Corbin. Gigantic influence. And one of the guys, he probably had the greatest technical knowledge of any comic book artist working in the business. He bought his own machine to make his own color separations, which is enormously expensive. Wow. But that way he was able to doctor the coloring at the most intense color, which is what he wanted for his comics. I see. And so I I had a funny experience meeting Richard. There was a guy working on Conan the Barbarian before I was working on Conan named Bob Greenberg. And he called me up. He says, Bill, Dino De La just hired Richard Corbin to do the storyboards for Conan. And they put me in charge of showing him a good time and entertaining him while he's in LA. Could we come over to your studio? I go, Richard Corbin, my studio? Hell yeah. <laughs> Bring that guy over here. I want to meet this guy. And so he, he brought Richard over, and I began to pull every rabbit out of every hat. I Hey, check this out. This is a, a Peruvian mummy head I've got. Here's an Egyptian mummy hand I've got. <laughs> if I could get more than two words out in a row out of him, uh, I was being really successful. He was just sort of standing there while I'm showing him all this stuff. He's, he's got a big smile on his face. He's got his hands in his pockets and he's sort of rocking back and forth on his heels. Uh-huh. And after about two hours, I, I ran out of stuff to show him. And I thought, well, I guess we just didn't connect because he, he never said anything <laughs> and stuff. And they took off. Two months later, I pick up the latest issue of Creepy Magazine. There's this mummy story by Corbin in it. And Corbin wrote a little intro. He said, I, I was recently hired to storyboard Conan the Barbarian movie. It didn't work out. And in fact, I had an incredibly miserable time in Los Angeles, except for when I got taken to Bill Stout's studio. That was the best day of my life. That was absolutely <laughs> Oh, my God. I was so much fun. He showed me all this really cool stuff. And he showed me this, this mummy head. And that's why I created this mummy story. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it was like. Well, wow. I could have knocked wow. over with a feather. I had no idea. That's funny. I guess he contained it and expressed it on paper. Yeah. That's a great story. I remember asking him, I said, do you ever use your wife as a model? He goes, nope, tits too small. <laughs> yeah. He's definitely known his art definitely. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about your work with Ralph Bakshi. You did the, uh, the poster for Wizards. Did you do anything else with that or just, just the poster? Well, at the time I was working for this little ad agency in the West Los Angeles part of LA, and they called me up. They said, we got something different for you this time. It's a movie poster for an animated feature. I said, oh, great. You're going to show me the film? They said, no, you'll do a nicer poster if you don't see the movie. Uh-huh. I okay. thought, well, that doesn't speak well of this film. But anyway, I, I came <laughs> in and picked up a job, and I think I did 12 roughs, and they picked one. And I went to finish on that, and that became the poster for the film. And then four days before the release of the film, I got a panicked call from the ad agency. The studio thinks your poster's too scary. It's going to scare kids, and they're not going to come see the movie. Uh-huh. I said, kids love scary. What are you talking about? Kids, I think scary is great. They go, no, no, you, you got to redo the poster. I go, 
the film's coming out four days from now. What do you mean redo the poster? I said, we have a printer waiting for you. <laughs> All you got to do is do the new art and get it over to that printer. And I said, I'll do it today. I made all the changes and stuff. I took the skulls and bones out and the flies and I replaced it with mushrooms and, and uh, flowers and stuff like that. <laughs> you sweetened it up a little bit. And believe it or not, I finished it that day, got it over the printer, and they had that in the theaters for the release of the film. Nice. Did you go see the film after that? I've never seen the film. Oh, really? You were curious about it. That's fascinating. It's a lot of people's favorite film. It's also a lot of people's most hated film. <laughs> but as I aged and as I grow, the people who hate that film have sort of disappeared. And there's a whole batch of people who are just nuts about that movie. Mm -hmm. You never met Bakshi? I didn't meet Ralph until after the poster was published. And then he wanted to meet the guy who did the poster. So I drove over to his studio. And uh, that was the first time I met Ralph. What did you think of him? He's a character, bigger than life yeah. character. I had a lot of friends who, who had worked for Ralph, and they had some pretty wild tales about the guy. Out of curiosity, is it uh, that you didn't see it because you felt like there's a lot of Wallywood and Von Bode influence, but they weren't credited? Or is that like, was there some reason that you, you still haven't seen it to this day? Let's see, how can I say this in a nice way? Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of Bakshi's films. Okay. I saw Fritz the Cat, Heavy Traffic, I saw a few other. I hated Lord of the Rings. It was two hours of talking heads. It was just so many people have warned me against seeing Wizards. Ralph gave me a copy. I've got it on Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. But uh, I just haven't had the interest. Okay. So now, um, how did you, and this is a little bit more of some musical stuff, how did you come about designing the original Rhino Records label in 1978? As I said, I was a big Yardbirds fan, and... I think it was like a local free paper. There's an article written on the Yardbirds by Harold Bronson. Mm -hmm. And I knew of a Fred Bronson who was involved in comics fandom and stuff. And I got them mixed up. I thought Harold was Fred. And so I wrote this really nice letter praising the, the Yardbirds article that Harold had written. Harold wanted to meet me. And we met. He was going to UCLA. And he was working as a clerk at a shop called Rhino Records in Westwood along with his pal, uh, Richard Foos. And Harold and I hit it off because we were both big Yardbirds fans. And then I got a call from him a few months later. They thought it would be a great idea to see what would happen if they made one of their own records. Yeah. So there was this street character named Wildman Fisher. And uh, he was hustle you on the streets of Hollywood. He'd say, sing a song for a dime. And if you uh -huh. paid him a 10 cents, he'd make up a song on the spot for you. Well, they got Wildman Fisher in the back room of Rhino Records with recording machines, and he spontaneously came up with a song called Come to Rhino Records. Yeah. And I think he did another song that ended up on the B-side. Harold calls me up and says, we're going to put out our first record and, and see what happens, but we need a, an image for the label. It's called Rhino Records. Can you do us a, a label drawing? And so I created Rocky Rhino. Oh, okay. And so that was on the very first Rhino record. To their amazement, that record sold out. So they did another one. They put together a group called the Temple City Kazoo Orchestra, and they did Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love All on Kazoos. They put that out. That sold out. Nice. And that was the launch, the seeds, very seeds of Rhino Records, which became the best re-release company in the world. Yeah. And uh, eventually, Harold uh, and... Richard quit Rhino, the records, the shop, because they were having, you know, full time with the record company. And eventually Richard bought his old record shop that he used to work at mm -hmm. and then had me redesign it. Oh, nice. So now you did the poster for Rock and Roll High School with the Ramones in 1979. And the Ramones themselves were big comic fans. Were they involved in the idea of you doing the poster? Did they give you feedback on the poster? How did that come about? That came about because I was doing movie posters. That was my main main gig back then. And boy, I'm trying to think if Rock and Roll High School is my first. I think Rock and Roll High School is probably my first poster for Roger Corman. Mm -hmm. And okay. I loved working for Roger because uh, typically the agency I did the most posters for was Steinerger and Associates, Tony Steinerger. And typically when I'd work for Tony, a film would come in and I'd do couple dozen roughs, 
and then I do a few comps, black and white comps, then I do a color comp. So by the time I finally got to the final poster, I'd drawn it about 40 times. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing that the public is going to see. That's, that's where all your energy and juice has to go into. And it was really difficult to not be burnt out from all the redrawing and everything. Well, Roger Corman didn't want to pay for all those refs and stuff. I could show him a sketch in my sketchbook, and he'd say, oh, Bill, go to finish. And it was great. So I could put all my energy into the finished art without having to redraw it 20 times. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure why they chose me for Rock and Roll High School. Maybe they had seen my Firesign Theater stuff. Mm. I'm not sure. But I got the call. I showed Roger my rough, and he, he said, go to finish. And at the time, the film was being edited by Joe Dante and the film's director, Alan Arkish, a little street that was just a few blocks from my apartment. So I, I came in to see them and to get photographs of all the people in the film because I wanted to put them in the poster. And walking into that room was like walking in on two kids who had just been given the keys to the candy shop. Mm-hmm. They always go to, to me on the movieola, working in the film business and making movies and stuff. So I picked up a whole bunch of reference photos from them and then did the poster. Uh, Roger did give me one instruction. He said, Bill, you can do anything you want as long as it looks like Animal House. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I drew it in Rick Marvitz's style. You know, it, it looks basically like the poster for Animal House. Uh-huh. And... Uh, and they were still making the film while I was doing the poster and stuff. Well, it turns out that my favorite taco and burrito place was also the favorite taco and burrito place of the Ramones. So I'd run into them all the time whenever I'd go to have lunch or dinner. Oh. So I met the guys that way. And I, and I told them, yeah, I'm doing the cover for your, or doing the poster for your movie and stuff. They were fine. Mm-hmm. They are cool awesome. guys. You also did the Beatles songs cover for Rhino Records in 1982. And there was some flack you got, or rather Rhino got, because Mark David Chapman appeared on the cover. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I got a call from Rhino Records. They wanted to put out an album called Beatles Songs. Now, these weren't songs by the Beatles. These were songs about the Beatles. Yeah. Like Ringo for President, or We Love You Beatles, or Yes We Do, that kind of stuff. So I was trying to come up with an idea for the cover, and I thought, I know. I'll do like a cross-section of a Beatlemania convention. You know, and show the guy who won the Ringo Lookalike contest, uh, avaricious dealers, and everything I could think of that would be at a Beatlemania convention. I thought, well, it wouldn't be complete unless I actually included the one guy who collected one of the Beatles. So I included Mark David Chapman on the cover. Right. And Rhino didn't catch that, and they put the album out, and it started this outrage. Uh, yes. Record shops were returning the, the boxes unopened. Rhino got death threats. I got death threats. We ended up on the front page of the LA Times. We ended up in People Magazine. Mm -hmm. My whole thinking back then was fans, they take this stuff way too seriously. And the guy who took it more seriously than any other was Mark David Chapman. Yeah. And so, so I saw the cover as a sort of a cautionary tale. Don't become this. Yeah. And I later heard that Yoko Ono saw a copy of the album cover. This was after John had been assassinated, obviously. Yeah. And she started laughing. She said, oh, John would have loved this. This is his sense of humor. That's awesome. That's great. It says killer on the cover, but in a dark sort of comedy. I could see John liking it from various documentaries I've seen with him. Yeah. Was Rhino mad at you for it? Well, they have a sense of humor. They were shocked. They were upset that they couldn't sell albums. And they, they tried putting it out with a plain brown wrapper cover. Uh, that didn't work. They took my cover off and released it with a shot of uh, a collection of Beatles memorabilia. Uh, but I knew as soon as they said, okay, we're going to pull all the albums and replace them, I started buying up. I bought boxes of those because I knew it would be a collector's item. I easily get 250 bucks a cover now. Oh, nice. So you still have some. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, audience, you know, if you need a copy, you got to contact Bill <laughs> Stout. He will sell one for 250 each. So I might want one of those. <laughs> yeah, I might want one actually, too. Yep. <laughs> I, I think it's one of my best covers, actually. I, I love it. It's a really good cover. So let's get away from music for a little bit and go to your film and television stuff. You opened up your own production design studio 
about what time was that? I was a huge Conan the Barbarian fan. Mm-hmm. And my friend Bob Greenberg was working there. And he said, man, you got to see what Ron Cobb is doing on Conan. Now, I knew Ron Cobb as a political cartoonist. He did political cartoons that were originally printed in the LA Free Press. And then they got distributed to all the underground newspapers in America. And that blew my mind that he was actually designing Conan. But I was so busy doing movie posters at the time, there's no way I could get over to the Conan offices. I remember I picked up the LA calendar. The films just happened to coincidentally all come out at the same time. Mm-hmm. Finally, I got a break in my schedule. Uh, but instead of going over to the Conan offices, I went to the ABA, the American Booksellers Association Fair. It used to take place every year, uh, usually alternating between LA and New York. That particular year, it was in LA. And it's every single publisher and every single editor in the United States all in one building. So it's a great place as an illustrator, bring my portfolio and go booth to booth to booth and pick up enough work for the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. Well, I walked into the ABA and the first person I ran into was Ron Cobb. And Ron said, look, I'm the production designer on Conan the Barbarian. You are my first choice of who I want to work with on this film. But I have an agreement with the director, John Milius. He has veto power over anybody I want to bring into the art department, I have veto power over anybody he wants to bring into the art department. So would you mind stopping in and dropping off your portfolio for John to see? I said, ah, sounds like fun. Be interesting. Learn how movies are made. And so I, I came in and Milius happened to be there. And he looked through my book and he remembered that heavy metal story I'd done, Shatter Like a Glass Goblin. And he loved that story. The art that I did for that, I think my Dragon Slayer's portfolio was in there and he handed it book back to me. And John's a bigger-than-life dramatic guy. And as he's walking out the door, he turns his head to the side and he goes, hire him. And so I walked <laughs> in to see uh, Buzz Feitchens, our line producer on Conan. And Buzz told me what I'd be making on Conan. And I nearly fell off the chair laughing because it was about 10% of what I was making in advertising. But I thought, well, it's just for two weeks. It'll be fun to see how movies are made. So I agreed to do it. Yeah. What I found out later is when you're hired for a film, you're always hired for two weeks. They want to find out if you're an asshole. If you are, once the two weeks is up, they can let you go and there's no hard feelings. But if you work out, then you stay in it. Well, my two weeks became two years. I worked on that film for for two solid years. That was really my introduction to the film business in a big way. My receptionist when I started to work there was Kathleen Kennedy. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. The guy whose office was across the hall from me, who was this uh, young filmmaker named Steven Spielberg. And Ron Cobb and I would work on Conan during the day and then run across to Stevens' office in the evening and kick around ideas for Stevens' next film, which was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And my naivete, I thought the business would always be like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then they introduced me to George Lucas because he was a buddy of theirs. And it was this very interesting and fascinating situation. And that really launched my film career. And I've since then worked on over 50 films. Yeah. Started as a storyboard yeah. artist and eventually became a production designer. Actually became a production designer in a very short amount of time. It took me two years. Now, when did you do the work on the Buck Rogers show in relation to this timeline? That was just prior to Conan. That was 1978. And it was originally going to be three two-hour films for Europe. And in the middle of the shooting of it, they decided to make it a, an American television show. And so to me, being called by them, it was just another gig, another freelance gig. And I didn't take it as seriously as I should have. And I remember I I came in, basically, I'd work at my studio for a week, come in each Friday and show what I'd done. And I came in and I saw that they had listed my name at the top of this big chart of everyone working on the film as the designer for the film. I was like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that at all. Uh-huh. And some other jobs came up, and I sort of pushed Buck Rogers to the side and then came back uh, instead of the following Friday, two weeks later and stuff. And so I, I was basically showing them I was unreliable, and I got fired on the spot. Uh-huh. I think I, I drove home. I, I think I was crying all the way home. Wow. Oh. Taught me a very valuable lesson early in my career is that if you're working on a film, don't do anything else. You do not have time. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That show ended up running for a few seasons, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I designed a lot of the insignias and costumes and a lot of different things for that. And what did you do on Thriller? John Landis called me. He wanted me 
the storyboard thriller. I don't know what I was working. It might have been Godzilla. But I said, you know, John, I can't do it, but I've got the perfect guy for you. And so I had the, my phone over to Dave Stevens, who I was sharing a studio with. So Dave got the gig, a storyboarding thriller. And then because of that, developed a, a great relationship with Michael Jackson. Michael wanted him to design everything. Was Stevens working for you at your studio or were you just sharing space with him? Dave was doing a lot of freelance stuff. He created the Rocketeer while he was at my studio. And then when I was made the production designer on Godzilla, I hired Dave and Doug Wildey to do storyboards for me. Wow. Doug Wildey, that's awesome. You later worked for Jackson in part designing some of the amusement park at his ranch. Is that right? I designed the Gates to Neverland. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. Sort of Peter Pan-themed wrought iron silhouettes. Did you know Jackson? Nope. Never met the guy. But we kept almost crossing paths because we both collect great illustrated books from the early part of the 20th century, Arthur Rackham, Edmund Dulac, Dutmold, stuff like that. And one of the shops that I primarily got my books was a place called Cherokee Books on Hollywood Boulevard. Comic fans would know that place because upstairs is where Burt Bloom had a comic book shop. That's where a lot of us would get our old and rare comics. Downstairs, his brother Gene, he ran the, the regular bookshop, and he had some great old illustrator books. And I remember walking in one day, and Gene said, man, the weirdest guy was just in here. He says, I almost threw him out. He said he, <laughs> he had, a, he had a, on a big, long raincoat and a big slouch hat, and he had a disguise with a big nose and sort of Groucho Marx eyebrows and horn rim glasses and, and big, huge buck teeth. And he looked like some homeless guy. And I was about to toss him out, and he said, Gene, Gene. It's me. It's Michael. It was Michael Jackson in disguise. <laughs> oh, wow. In there to buy illustrated books. That's wild. Yeah. But he was disguising himself even as back then, it looks like. Yeah. Was it around this time that you did some of the Alien World stuff for Bruce Jones for Pacific? Yeah, I think. I can't remember. The, was that early 70s, mid 70s, late 70s? Yeah, I think late 70s. It was funny. L.A. wanted to have an underground comic book scene like San Francisco had. Mm -hmm. And there were some financial backer guys who decided this was a good idea. And they threw a huge party. And that was the second time I met Robert Williams. And at one of those parties, we decided, okay, we were going to do an underground comic book called Let Sanity Die, LSD. Uh, And uh. each artist was going to have one or two pages. And then the center spread was going to be by Robert Crumb. It was going to be Honey Bunch Kaminsky naked with her legs spread. And you would lick her crotch. And on her crotch, there'd be a dot of paper acid. Huh. And so you'd come huh. on to the LSD and then read the comic. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was the only guy who finished his two pages. No one else did. Uh-huh. You uh, sailed through the storm. Yeah. But one of the nice things was I, I got to meet Robert Williams. Robert and I became really close. He's still one of my dearest friends. I remember I showed him my Let's Entity Die pages, and he goes, Bill, put too many claws on that T-Rex. They only had two claws on each hand. <laughs> it embarrassed me, but he started me on the path to, you know, if you're going to draw dinosaurs, you better know your stuff. So I started, I joined the Society of <laughs> Paleontology and began to build all my dinosaurs up from the skeleton up. and changed my life. Well, this is awesome, Bill. Thanks so much for going over the first half of your career here at the Comic Book Historians Podcast. Join us next week as we go over the second half with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. 